And you are listening now to our WOKV Spotlight on the Florida primary coming up here on August 30th. My name is Kevin Rayfuse, and today we are talking District 5. And joining me now in studio is LJ Holloway. She's running for Congress here to represent District 5 in Florida. LJ, how are you this morning? I'm well. Thank you, Kevin, for asking. I appreciate you coming in. But first things first, before we get too heavy into the issues, it's going to be one of the big topics with the future of District 5 and really how this is all shaken out. We've always seen a big redistricting fight previously back in 2014 in the last election district five it stretched from jacksonville all the way down to orlando now it's going west towards tallahassee you know what did you make of this entire redistricting process um back in 2010 it was put to the uh voters and the voters said they wanted fair districts and so as a result of that the state legislature failed to draw the lines and then it became an issue for judge terry lewis to draw not only did judge terry lewis draw the proposed lines that the state legislature failed to draw, but the Supreme Court upheld that decision. So as a citizen and as a person who respects voters, I have to live with that. And as a result, I am now a candidate to represent the people of the 5th Congressional District. And so you want to talk about your campaign. You know, obviously you are going up against the incumbent and Congresswoman Kareem Brown. You're coming from a bit of an outside perspective. You know, what made you want to jump in the race here for District 5? And, you know, what is inspiring your campaign so far? Well, actually, it's the people that inspires my campaign. I actually decided to run um, back in October is when I announced. I announced October 12, 2000. 2015, because if truth be told, I'm a fourth generation Jacksonvillian and I'm not at all pleased with the representation in the area. Um, I grew up in what is considered the fifth congressional district and you see no growth. Of course, here in your lovely studios, uh, you probably can't tell from uh, this district, which is the fourth congressional district to that district. It's like a tale of two cities. And so because I am a former Capitol Hill staffer, I worked for Congresswoman Carrie Meek, who was on the Appropriations Committee. Not only do I understand the legislative process, but I've walked the wall, the halls of Congress, and I'm probably the only person in the race who can walk you underground through the tunnel from the Cannon House Office building over to the Capitol and probably over to the Senate side. Notwithstanding any of that, I also have a law degree that I earned from the University of Florida, so I have a very keen understanding of the Constitution, which I think has prepared me and make me poised for the position. Hence, my uh, request to your voters to please vote LJ Holloway for a better day. And so we talk about the growth of the Jacksonville community and you mentioned some of the disparities between District 4 and District 5, but just in general, there's a Forbes.com survey that was actually released the other day that had um, that shows that Jacksonville, believe it or not, is the second most attractive city for people moving right now. The area on the first coast, we've seen companies like Amazon come in and, and make investments in the city in recent years. How do we translate that growth into District 5 and what are some of the challenges that District 5 is facing and how will you help advocate that growth for District 5? We translate that, like you said, with uh, a tra- we have lots of land um, in the 5th Congressional District and we translate that to economic development. We translate that into jobs and once you start to see people are gainfully employed, you start to see some of the disparities uh, decrease. One, crime goes down when people are gainfully employed. Two, you see families um, families are more productive when there is stable income in households. And so I think what all Americans want is economic security. And they want to know that there will be social security when they retire and social security for their children.
And you mentioned crime. It's uh, been a recent issue. We, we've been talking about police relations in the recent months. We've seen all sorts of incidents from both Alton Sterling and Philando Castile in Baton Rouge in Minnesota. And then conversely, on the other hand, the shootings of police officers in Dallas and in Baton Rouge. You know, how, do, how important is community policing and how do we regain the trust between police and the communities they're serving? I'm so glad you asked that question. Community policing is very important. When you have community policing and you have officers who understand the community and the culture of a community, but more importantly, who know the residents of a certain community, then you don't have overzealous police officers um, who are... Um, a, sometimes um, just acting on a perception as opposed to a reality. And conversely, you'll have community communities that trust the police who are charged to serve and to protect them. So I think it's a two-way street. I think that uh, officers who protect communities where they come from or where they know the residents, they're more apt to be more creative and find more solutions to curb mischief and crime. What type of change do you think think you can make on the federal level regarding that? Well, uh, one of the things I think I could do uh, to change that on the federal level, uh, like I said, because um, I do have a law degree and I have written several several pieces of legislation, um, in particular uh, police personnel when I worked for the government of the District of Columbia, uh, which is also uh, federal municipal regulations. One of the things we can do is start to record the number of crime, rec- the number of crimes uh, in a particular community, and we can start to do more targeting more targeting policing case in point if you have a community that believes that there are overzealous police that are killing people if you start to keep those numbers then the public will know accurately what that number is if it's a myth or if it's a reality but moreover what we need is a national database for police brutality And so another thing that goes hand in hand with that and in terms of the crime angle, I should say, in recent months has been the mass shooting epidemic that's going throughout the United States. You know, recently here in Florida, we saw the the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, and we've seen all sorts of uh, reactions on both sides of the aisle. We saw Democrats, for example, calling for more gun control on Republicans. They were focusing on a mental health issue. You know, what do you think is the best solution when it comes to stopping gun violence, just both in our communities and in the U.S. in general? Well, one of the things I think we should do is, um, one, close the loopholes. There are so many loopholes, and people can go to a gun show if they have cash and purchase a gun. We need to, A, close the loopholes, but B, we need more background checks. We definitely need more background checks. Um, the three-day waiting, the federal three-day waiting period, I think, should be something um, that is mandatory for all purchasers of guns, but uh, there also should be a ban on assault wef- assault weapons um, unless of course you have a license and a specific use or permission. Uh, what do you say in terms of voters that feel like this is an infringement of their Second Amendment rights? Um, what you say to those voters is yes, if you if if you fit within a certain criteria, and I mean if it's for hunting, by all means. However, but if it's but if you do not have a hunting license and you go out and purchase an assault rifle with a background check, we should we should in three days we should be able to ascertain whether or not this person has a history of mental instability or. If 
this person has violent propensities. So kind of switching gears a bit now, we it's been another uh, fear of many Americans in recent months. We see the involvement of the Islamic State overseas. We obviously know there's a campaign going on right now in both Iraq and Syria to fight ISIS. President Obama, he's been mostly with airstrikes and committing of special forces on the ground. But the fears remain after we see attacks in Paris and in Brussels and in Nice you know, of an attack in America. You know, What do you say to people worried about homegrown terror here in the United States? How do we combat that? And what do you think of President Obama's campaign and its success so far? Oh, that's a loaded question, Kevin. Uh, first and foremost, let me say that uh, when I worked inside the Beltway uh, for LexisNexis, I sold the largest deal in U.S. history to U.S. Customs. And I will say that there's a number of things uh, that we can do. And we can start with uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the, Cur- uh, of the Currency. Um, oftentimes, when you see these sales coming into the United States, you can often track them uh, with, uh, with dollars. So we can can start by making sure that we have intergovernment relation, intergovernmental relations between the agents agencies within our departmental offices, um, whether that's Homeland Security, Office of the Comptroller of Currency, uh, and U.S. Customs. I think what we need to do is start pooling our federal resources so that we can a track sales and we have intergovernmental relations where people are communicating with others so that we can track down faster these sales that have come that are in the United States and be able to act with specificity to to ensure that not only our borders are protected but that our streets are safe. When you mentioned border protection, we've seen the immigration issue come up in recent months. We saw President Obama's plan. It's been put on hold temporarily by the Supreme Court. On the other side of the coin, we've seen his reactions as extremist Donald Trump's, where he's talking about building a wall across our southern border to Mexico. But all in all, on both sides of the aisle, we've seen calls for immigration reform. You know, what do you think is the best strategy towards approaching immigration reform that can make everyone happy? Well, that's such a loaded question. Um, a, I think that America is a um, a a. a a melting pot, and I think the country is built by immigrants. Um, I am of, you know, I am an um, United States citizen, and I am born in the United States. But I assume that uh, my ancestors came on a boat as slaves. But notwithstanding any of that, um, I do believe that those uh, persons who uh, are here and who are illegal, I think we should make sure that there is some type of amnesty program for those people who contribute to the fabric of our nation. Um, And oftentimes you'll find that uh, people who are here undocumented typically have children who were born in the state. So I don't think that as a country we should be dismantling families. I think what we have to do is uh, find a happy medium for those people who have skills that add to the wealth of this nation and find a way to protect those uh, political refugees who come to this country and and uh, cohesively exists as America the melting pot uh, was designed and should 
operate. When you mentioned some of those immigrants, uh, the Syrian refugee is another aspect of that immigration, that argument that has come up in recent months. We saw here in Florida, Governor Scott proposed a temporary stay on Syrian refugees coming into the United States. He, he called for stricter background or stricter research on their background, I should say. But, um, President Obama has also made efforts to settle more of these refugees in the United States, you know, trying to open everything up and saying that the United States essentially needs to be the beacon of hope for a lot of these refugees who are freeing conflicts. You know, what do you think is the best type of solution to this issue? Do you think it should be a bit more inclusive or do you think there should be a temporary stay or are you kind of somewhere in the middle? I am certainly um, in the middle. Um, certainly, um, no child should have to uh, live in fear and hear gunshots, and families certainly shouldn't be separated. So, for those Syrian, those refugees who are of Syrian descent, um, I think if they are here, they are safe. Um, they should be protected. Um, however, I do believe that. One, as a country, we cannot start to legislate who gets to come and who gets to stay. We should have a comprehensive approach towards uh, towards immigration, um, towards immigration and political refugees. I want to take it now to a more of a hyper local issue, and this is something that's been amplified this week uh, within the recent. Sh- there was a recent shooting at Eureka Gardens apartment complex. Seven people shot. Uh, police currently, as of recording this interview, are still looking for three suspects. But this follows a long line of issues at the Eureka Gardens apartments complex. People living in just frankly unacceptable housing, substandard housing. We've seen senators, both Marco Rubio and Bill Nelson, call for change on a federal level to step in. How do do we prevent something like this from a happening again and how do we fix the problem so that we can guarantee these residents are kept safe and live in adequate conditions uh, you know, um, I think first and foremost, um, we need a um, to ensure that we have members of Congress who have who have a depth and breadth of federal experience to make sure that One, they have a working relationship with the secretary of the Housing and Urban Development. Um, We currently have a member in Congress to represent that particular district. One, when the issues were first brought to light, I I understand that it's, you know, a member of Congress role is to make and abridge laws. However, a member of Congress also has a staff and a member of Congress also should have their finger on the pulse of the constituents within their district. I feel like first and foremost, that when the issue first arose, when the issue first was brought to light, one a letter should have been sent to, should have been sent to Secretary Castro, and there should have been certain parameters requested, addressed, and followed up upon regarding the shootings. I think it is very unfortunate. Um, I do believe that um, there should be a working relationship between federal, state, and local offices. And I was actually over there yesterday um, as a result of those shootings because my biggest concern was for the children in that community. Um, But one of the things that was most frustrating to me is there was no police presence knowing that the three suspects have not been caught. And so if if there are rumors and I know this as a civilian or a candidate running to represent the people, of the fifth congressional district, if you know that there are talks of retaliation, why wasn't there a police presence? Number one, because typically we know that criminals return to the uh, scene of a crime. Why wasn't there a police presence? 
But more importantly, why wasn't there counselors in that community for those children who had to hear more than 50 gunshots ring out in the air? If you know that if there was another community, if there were more than 50 gunshots ringing out in the air, there would have been grief counselors or there would have been counselors over there. And so you have children who are about to start school in a week who probably are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. We need to make sure that not only that we protect children in vulnerable communities, but we need to also make sure that people have housing that is standard, not substandard and, 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 and tenable, not because you're poor or you live in a certain segment of the city that people ignore you and don't fight for the voiceless. So LJ Holloway is running to represent the people of the 5th Congressional District because she cares about all people, not just some people. And so as we get to the end of our conversation here, again, you're listening to the WOKV Spotlight. We're focusing right now on District 5. My name is Kevin Rafuse. I'm joined by LJ Holloway. And LJ, I'll get you out of here on this note. Why are you most qualified to represent District 5? And you know, what is your passion? Why are you making this run? And, and what makes you different from the other candidates that are running for this position right now? Uh, what makes me different from the other candidates is first we have a recycled candidate and we have we have a I'm sorry a recycled politician who is a lobbyist and we also have a career politician in the incumbent. I have never held an office and I have done the job by working on Capitol Hill and I think what makes me different is I am unbought and unbossed and I genuinely care for people and by virtue of the fact that I have the law degree and understand the Constitution and have actually done the job, I think that makes me the most qualified person in the race. So for all those reasons, I think it is um, best if people would A, vote for change. Seasons change. It's time for change in America. And I think uh, I think we're seeing it across the country. I think people are looking for change, and I am that change. So I wholeheartedly implore the listeners of WOKV to vote LJ Holloway for a better day. LJ, thank you very much. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you.